Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that has been read. And now as the word is preached, we seek your help. We seek the Holy Spirit to come and to give us understanding to your word that we might respond rightly to the truth, that we might respond with great faith and with great obedience to your demands upon our lives. We pray all of this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been, we've been working our way through the book of James, we've noted how practical this letter is, how it really tries to apply the Christian faith to our everyday experiences. It's very similar to the Old Testament book of Proverbs in how it offers for us very practical wisdom for life. Well, in this morning's passage, it addresses one of the most common experiences in life, that is relational conflict, fighting arguing, quarreling. It all began in the garden with a man, a woman, and a serpent all pointing fingers at each other. And ever since then, humanity has been perpetually in conflict. Kingdoms have fought kingdoms. Nations have warred against nations. Children have rebelled against parents and husbands and wives have betrayed each other. And there just seems to be a sinful human tendency in all of us to divide ourselves into groups, whether it's along racial lines or class lines or political lines, and then to grow antagonistic towards those that we deem to be the others. It seems to be part of our sinful human nature. And it's a reason why Jesus came to live a life of peace that we should have lived and to die a death for sin that we should have died in order to break down the dividing walls of hostility between mankind. In his own body, the Lord made for himself a new humanity where the old lines of division no longer define us. We call it the church. The church was redeemed to really serve as a community of peace, as a shining example, as a, as a city on a hill displaying the power of God, his ability to settle generational feuds and to help heal deep-seated hostilities. But you know, even the church is not immune to the curse of perpetual conflict. The pages of the New Testament, they paint an honest picture of the early church with warts and all. In the book of Acts, we read of a fallout between Paul and Barnabas and there's also a conflict that's not settled until the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 over what to do with Gentile converts within a predominantly Jewish movement. And in the book of Galatians, Paul recounts a conflict that he had with the Apostle Peter. And in his other letters, Paul never shies from addressing the growing conflicts and controversies that are taking place in all of these fledgling churches. And well, here in James... In James, he's speaking to the church and he's calling them out for fighting and quarreling. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Wow. And you thought your church had problems. Those disagreements over what songs to sing or over what building to build, they're looking pretty tame right now compared to whatever conflict was brewing among James's original audience. And I think it's funny when you hear Christians who like to romanticize about the early church, 
who complain about all the problems of the contemporary church and how it would just be so much better if we could, could just return to the simplicity and the purity of the early church. Well, I don't really know about that because according to our passage, the early church had its own share of relational conflicts. And that's because, friends, no matter how different our times, no matter how different our context may be to the early church, we share in common the very thing that causes conflicts among us. And that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. You know, in this contemporary moment, we've got a lot of conflict, don't we? We have even fellow Christians at each other's throats over how we handle this pandemic. Some will say we've overblown the dangers and that we're living by fear and not by faith. Others will say that we're not taking the pandemic seriously enough and doing enough to protect the vulnerable in our communities. And at the same time, we have Christians in conflict over how to assess and how to address the larger societal issues regarding racial equality. Some would say the real problem comes down to a lack of personal responsibility and accountability, while others will say it really comes down to a need for systemic reform. And debates between these two groups tend to generate a lot of heat and a lot of friction. And besides these larger fights within the church, Everyday Christians are dealing with everyday conflicts in our marriages, in our families, in our spiritual communities. Our unity is being threatened and our gospel witness is being tainted by fights and quarrels. What we need to do is to figure out what causes these conflicts between us and, and what can heal these divisions. And that, my friends, is really the kind of practical wisdom that we can expect to find out of today's text in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We're going to see three things. We're going to see in this passage, first, the common cause of conflicts. Second, the spiritual root of conflicts. And third, the grace-led response to conflicts. So James begins chapter four, raising the question of causality. Where do conflicts come from? What causes them? Listen to verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So first off, we're going to see James address the common cause of conflicts. Now, before we consider that common cause, I think we should define what James is referring to when he speaks of fights and quarrels. Because elsewhere in scripture, those terms are used to describe actual combat between armies. And so there's definitely a militaristic tone here. So we can't rule out the possibility that these conflicts occurring between these early Christians actually turned physically violent. I mean, after all, James does speak of murder or killing in verse two. But most commentators are skeptical to think that this was a case of physical violence and bloodshed within a Christian community. Uh, they would point to the larger context here, and, and considering the earlier chapter about the misuse of the tongue, well, the conflict here probably didn't escalate to physical violence and murder. It's most likely referring to verbal disputes between those within a church. But the bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition between these Christians, which, 
which James identified earlier in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16, those things could very well lead to physical violence if they go unchecked. So James understands the capability of the sinful heart. He was familiar with Jesus' own teaching on how harsh words spoken in anger are really tantamount to murder because the same heart conditions in a murderer are found in the hearts of those who are figuratively at each other's throats in a conflict. So just because our verbal conflicts with one another have yet to escalate to the point of physical violence, we shouldn't discount these verses and assume they don't apply to our situation. As students of the word, we need to try to, to understand the specific conflict that James's audience is dealing with, but then realize that the principles found here would apply to any rela- relational conflict with anyone in our lives. So no matter the particulars of your case, no matter what specific conflict you're going through right now, James is explaining the common cause of it all. And he identifies it as this. He says it comes down to unfulfilled desires. Listen to verses one and two. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So if you're trying to figure out why you keep getting into relational conflict with other people, whether it's your spouse or it's your parents or maybe a coworker or a friend, James is saying, instead of trying to figure out what's wrong with the other person, you need to figure out what's wrong with you. You can get so caught up battling others that you don't realize there's a battle going on inside of you. He says your passions are at war within you. Literally, it's your pleasures. Your pleasures are at war within you. The Greek word there is hedone. It's where we get the word hedonism. And so it carries a negative connotation to it. So we're we're talking about there being selfish pleasures warring inside of you. In other words, your relational conflicts are caused by internal conflicts. You seek to please yourself, and yet you don't get what you want. You covet something, and yet you don't obtain it. And that's what causes conflicts. Your frustrated desires eventually become envious desires. You get so focused on pleasing yourself that that you become the center of your own universe, and all of your unfulfilled desires are just rotating and revolving around you. That's really what it means to be self-centered. Now imagine what happens when you bring two or more self-centered individuals into orbit of each other. When they enter into community, it shouldn't surprise anyone when their revolving desires begin to collide with each other. Self-centered individuals cannot live in harmony with one another. Collisions and conflict are inevitable. If only there existed one being with enough 
weight, enough gravitas for all of us self-centered people to revolve ourselves around, to, to fall into orbit around the same person in the center. That would seem to be the only way to form a harmonious community of peace. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to this situation among James's audience. Based on the context of chapter three, it appears that some in the church desired to be teachers, to take up some position of teaching influence, to, 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 to be um, a leader within the church, but they lacked the requisite wisdom and ability to control their tongue. So their desire to obtain a position of teaching influence went unfulfilled. And, and those frustrated desires morphed into envious desires that led to conflict with others who wanted the same thing or, or others who had what they wanted. That's what's happening here. And James responds by saying that the reason your desires remain unfulfilled and frustrated is because ultimately you're not turning to God with them. Listen to verses two and three. You do not have because you do not ask. You're not asking God. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so he's telling these people who desire to be teachers in the church that you lack the necessary wisdom because you fail to seek it from above. Back in chapter one, verse five, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And so the real problem here is prayerlessness, the, their refusal to turn to God and, and to seek the wisdom from above. Instead, they settle for worldly wisdom that they can simply obtain for themselves. And even if they do ask, James says, they ask God wrongly. That is, they have the wrong motives when they pray. They want that position of influence in order simply to please themselves and to please their own selfish ambitions. They're not doing it to please God. It's the wrong motive. And so, friends, that's the particular situation going on for James. But more generally, these principles would apply to any of our relational conflicts. All of our problems with other people can somehow find their cause in unfulfilled, frustrated desires that eventually become envious desires. You desire the same thing they desire. You're both after the same person or, or the same position or the same possession. Or, or you know, maybe, maybe it's something that you just want from them. It could be their love, their respect, their attention, their compliance, whatever it is. You're not getting what you want because, because they have their own set of conflicting desires that keep colliding with yours. This is what happens. This is what happens when, when everyone acts as if the world revolves around them. No one's desires are met. Everyone's left frustrated and envious of other people. Friends, this really is the common cause of all the fighting and all the quarreling that's going on in our world today. And any attempt to create a more peaceable society that is really just going to fall flat if we don't address the human heart and our unfulfilled desires. 
I think we can change laws or we can come up with more laws. We can create for ourselves a just and equitable society. But if the human heart goes unfulfilled, well, then there will always be fighting and quarreling going on. I mean, just think about the world before the fall of man. Before there was any sin, any hunger, any famine, any material scarcity. And yet, in this paradise, in this perfect world, Satan was compelled to war against God. He lacked no apparent needs. He lived in a sinless world without conflict or war. And yet there was a war waging inside of him. His conflicted desire to be in the position of God, to, to have absolute autonomy and authority, that always eluded him. That frustrated desire of his devolved into an envious desire that resulted in conflict. He rose up against his creator. And so the fact that even Satan rebelled against God, even though he was living in a sinless world without any apparent needs, well, that just goes to show that beyond the common cause of unfulfilled desires, there lies a deeper spiritual root to all of our conflicts. In other words, no matter how many of your desires do get satisfied, no matter how many of your needs are actually met, there will always be one position of greatest power and influence that will always elude you. That, me, that being, being God of your own life. We are not, and we never will be God. And until we accept that and, and properly worship the Lord as God, there's never going to be a resolution to our perpetual conflicts with, with God or with man. So, so if unfulfilled Frustrated desires are the common cause of conflicts. Friends, the spiritual root of our conflicts would be what we call idolatry or spiritual unfaithfulness. This is what James implies in verse 4. He starts there by calling his audience, you adulterous people. Now, I know that sounds pretty harsh. Literally, he says, you adulterous He's drawing from the Old Testament imagery of, of spiritual unfaithfulness. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament like to compare God's people to an unfaithful wife who is cheating on her husband with other lovers. The, 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 uh, the, the, the Old Testament calls Israel an adulteress. And so James is labeling this church, these Christians, as an adulteress because they're cheating on God as they seek friendship with the world. Listen to verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the problem is worldliness. They've made friends with the world. They've cozied up to the world. They, they have all the, their desires uh, and they're trying to satisfy it in the world. And, and, and instead of looking to God for satisfaction, they're hoping that the world has what they need. 
James calls that friendship with the world. We could call that worldliness. And it's really just another form of idolatry. And God, well, God doesn't take too kindly to that. If you're a Christian, if you're in a covenant relationship with the Lord, and yet you keep looking to the world, to the things and and to the people of the world to satisfy your deepest desires, well, then you've committed adultery. You've been spiritually unfaithful and, and God won't tolerate that. If you look in verse five, James says that it makes God jealous. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, I know the thought of God being jealous may not sit right with some of you. It sounds beneath the almighty God to get jealous. But just imagine with me. Imagine a husband who doesn't mind other men flirting with his wife who doesn't care if, if she runs into the arms of other lovers seeking to fulfill her desires and to gratify her pleasures in their love. I think if we, if we met a man like that, we would conclude that he's not a very good husband and that he doesn't care for his wife, that he doesn't really love her. But if the husband's jealousy was provoked by the sight of another man's arm around his wife, then we would call him a good husband. And we would say that he is rightfully jealous. Well, the same applies to God. I I know you might be taken aback by the idea of God yearning jealously over us and, and being upset with our friendship with the world. But what would it mean if he wasn't jealous? Well, it would mean that he doesn't really care about you, that he doesn't really love you. And so church, I think that's why we should be thankful that God is a jealous God who doesn't take our friendship with the world lightly. This jealousy is an indicator of how much God loves you. But you know, while that might be an encouraging thought, the goal of these few verses is really not to encourage you, but to warn you to warn you of the spiritual root that underlies all of our conflicts, to help you see that behind all of your relational problems is the problem of idolatry. Those unfulfilled, frustrated desires become envious desires. And if, and if they're not checked, if you don't turn to God to find true satisfaction, then those envious desires will eventually turn into idolatrous demands. You don't just want that person's love or attention anymore. No, now you need their love and attention. You demand those things. And if they fail you or reject you, well, then it's not something that you can easily overlook. Offending an idol is a very serious matter. Imagine with me if you were to visit some pagan village and for some reason, you were to deface an idol. You were to just you know, graffiti all over a, a, a stone image. Well, you better watch out. You can expect the worshipers of that idol to come looking for a fight because we always defend our idols. And it makes no difference if those idols are simply the demands that we impose upon other people. When others refuse to bow to our deified demands, 
we're looking for a fight. We'll argue. We'll quarrel because we always defend our idols. That's how this works. Now, James gives us a practical example in verses 11 to 12. This is an example of how well-meaning Christians can get so offended by each other to the point that they're speaking evil against each other. Listen to verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So it seems, friends, that from ancient times, people at church can be really mean with their words. They have the potential to say malicious, cruel, evil things about each other. And as bad as that is in itself, James is trying to show that at the core, that's really a problem of idolatry. He goes on to connect speaking evil against your brother in Christ with sitting in judgment over him. To to speak malicious, maligning words about someone is to judge someone. You're you're trying to play judge. You're, You're issuing decrees over them. James goes on to say, that's really the same as speaking evil against the law of God and judging the law. Because the royal law, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But by your evil speech, you're rejecting the law. You're placing yourself above it. And that's just another form of idolatry. To speak evil against someone is to speak evil against the law, which is really an attempt to supplant the lawgiver. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So friends, there it is. What causes our relational conflicts? What leads us to to such bad behavior that we begin speaking evil against each other? It's because we're trying to play God. He's the only lawgiver and judge, and yet we try to do his job. We try to play God. And that's the spiritual root of our conflicts. Like the devil from the beginning, we're trying to be the God of our own lives. We take our unfulfilled desires of what we want or or what we expect of other people And we have turned them into demands that have taken on a deified status. And if they refuse to bow to our deified demands, then we are willing to go to war in order to defend our idols. That, my friends, is how every fight, every quarrel, every argument essentially starts. A husband and a wife arguing about quality time have taken a good desire an unfulfilled one, and turned it into a deified demand. And when those demands are not respected or just outright rejected, well, then we're willing to go to war in marriage. A parent and a child arguing about restrictions on phone usage or or screen time have, have their own set of frustrated desires. The child wants more freedom. The parent expects more responsibility. But when those desires 
turn into deified demands, then neither side is willing to budge and we will go to war to defend our idols. Or just think about the public's response to this pandemic. On one side, you have those who who feel very strongly about requiring masks wherever you go. They desire to protect the public safety. But then you have anti-maskers. You have those who feel equally strong about their desire to protect personal liberties. Now, you know, by themselves, these two desires are, are good things. But conflict begins when those desires get frustrated and become demands that take on a deified status to the point that really no one is listening to each other anymore in the debate. Instead, if you don't immediately agree with my deified demands, whether it's to wear a mask or not, you're condemned. I'll sit in judgment over you and I won't listen to you, but I will berate you. That's how contentious things are. And you can come up with plenty more examples of equally contentious issues in our society at large, and also among Christians in particular, within the same church. Whatever the conflict is, if you trace it back far enough, you'll find two or more Christians sitting in judgment seats, condemning one another, all the while trying to defend their idols, their deified demands that they've imposed on each other. So what then should we do about it? Well, now that we have a better understanding of the common cause and the spiritual root of conflict, well, I think we're ready now to talk about the grace-led response to conflict that we find in verses 6 to 10. So let's start reading again back in verse 6. If you recall, James just warned that our worldliness, our friendship with the world, breeds enmity with God. We invoke his jealous wrath, the righteous indignation of a spurned spouse. But, look there in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God, as the only God, is the only one who can rightfully make demands. And his divine jealousy demands our wholehearted devotion and our absolute submission to his lordship. He he rejects our double-mindedness. It's either friendship with the world or friendship with him. It's either making him master or attempting to be our own. He's not going to accept a halfway commitment. It's all or nothing. So think think about it this way. You could just stay where you are. You can continue being the center of your own universe, where you are the lawgiver, you are the judge, where your desires and your demands revolve all around you. Now, if you choose that path, if you stay there in the center, you just have to realize that your only hope of having conflict-free relationships is to surround yourself only with those people who can fulfill your every desire and agree to all of your demands. Good luck with that. Or the alternative is to move yourself from the center, 
to draw near to God, to submit yourself to God and to begin to orbit your life around him. He becomes your center and you look to him to ultimately satisfy your desires and, and you no longer deify your demands and impose them on other people because God is your God and you have humbled yourself before him. And it's when you're in this orbit around God, that is when you can look around and you can see who else is revolving their lives, revolving their desires and demands around the same God. When you find a community of God-centered people, that, my friends, is where you know you are going to find the sweetest communion. That is where you find a community of peace. So if you're dealing right now with some relational conflicts, you know, I think it would be wise for you to actually seek out a, a counselor, seek out a, a someone to, to give you relational counseling, because honestly, there's no way a sermon, one sermon like this can speak into the complexities of your situation. But you know, what I do hope though, is that at least a sermon like this can, can, can help you um, to move towards a resolution in your conflict and to work towards peace. But friends, for that to happen, there needs to be a change of heart. There needs to be a change from being self-centered to becoming God-centered. But here's the problem. For a self-centered person to willingly move himself or to move herself out of the center and to begin to orbit around God is going to take a Herculean feat of supernatural strength. It just seems downright impossible. Look at what we're commanded to do here out of a willing spirit. We're supposed to submit ourselves to God and to resist the devil. Verse 7. We're supposed to draw near to God to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. That's verse eight. We are to be wretched and mourn and weep to, to let our laughter and our joy turn into mourning and gloom. That means we're supposed to, to feel remorse for our sins and, 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 and to feel a desire to repent. That's verse nine. And lastly there in verse 10, we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. But you see, the problem with all of that is that none of that comes natural to self-centered people like us. It's like trying to get a, a lion to willingly try a salad or a fish to willingly live on land. They're not going to do it willingly because it goes against their very nature. Well, in the same way, it goes against our very self-centered nature to move ourselves out of the center. But God gives more grace. And that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. God gives what he demands. His mercy leads. And that's why we're calling this a grace-led response to conflict. We are called to move to orbit around God, but only as a response 
to his grace that moves first, that takes the initiative to change our very nature, to make us new creations in Christ who willingly submit to God, who naturally mourn over our sins and who instinctively humble ourselves before the Lord. God drew near to us long before any one of us drew near to him. By grace, he came near to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who wholly submitted himself to God, who perfectly resisted the devil, who had clean hands and a pure heart, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, you can respond to the grace of the gospel by submitting yourself to God. Draw near and take your place in orbit around him. Take those demands that you have been imposing upon other people and lay them down at the feet of God. Bring all of your unfulfilled desires to Christ and trust that his mercy is enough to satisfy your soul. Lay down your swords, my friends, and begin to live under the peace of his gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the way it warns and it convicts. And thank you for how it is filled with grace and reminds us of the grace of the gospel, of your mercy, your abundant mercy to us in the person and work of Christ. And so thank you, Jesus, our Prince of Peace, who came to live for us and to die for us. May we be transformed and may we live under your banner of peace and to be people of peace in your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen.